Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Hiding in Plain Sight. Today is Monday, April 13th, 2020. It is the day after Easter and one week after the most recent General Conference. In tonight's episode, I want to cover a number of things which may sound very dissimilar at first, but they all are linked by the idea of hiding things and hiding in plain sight. I am going to go from beginning with talking about Easter egg hunts to a little bit about Edgar Allan Poe, then discussing the four gospel accounts of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and finally work my way around into the first talk of the most recent General Conference, which was given Saturday morning by Elder M. Russell Ballard. So let's start with Easter egg hunts. Now, we did not have an Easter egg hunt yesterday. Typically, those are held in families where there are small children. We've got no more of those anymore which is, in some ways, a good thing, in other ways, a bad thing. But I remember being a kid and really having a lot of fun with Easter egg hunts, and then growing up having kids of my own, and then I was the one who was in charge of the Easter egg hunts. I was the one who was in charge of hiding the eggs. And when you're hiding Easter eggs, the goal is generally to hide them in such a way that they can be seen, they can be found even by children, but not to make it too easy and at the same time, not make it too hard. If you have children of different ages, then you'll hide them in different ways. Some of them very, very easy to be found. Some of them at eye level or on the ground for little children, out in the open for little children. Really no effort to conceal them for little children. But if you have older children as well, then some of those eggs are gonna have to go into places where they are more difficult to find. So it's somewhat of a challenge for the older children and the Easter egg hunt can still be fun for them. There were times when I was hiding Easter eggs when I thought, you know, if I really wanted to hide an Easter egg, what I would do is I would get a shovel, I would dig a hole in the ground, I would put the Easter egg at the bottom of that hole, and then I would shovel the dirt back on it and disguise and camouflage the hole so it didn't look like anybody had been digging there. If I did that and I did it successfully, there is no way in the world that anybody would ever find that Easter egg. But really, that's not really the point of it in an Easter egg hunt, is it? The point is to have the eggs be found, but not to make it too easy. If you actually dug a hole and hid an Easter egg in the hole, that would make it too difficult for people to find. On the other hand, you would be successful in making it so that nobody ever found that Easter egg. You will be glad to know that I never succumbed to the temptation of actually digging a hole to hide eggs in an Easter egg hunt. But often what happens at the end of an Easter egg hunt is that all the kids are done, they have found the eggs, they brought them in, they're comparing among themselves who found the most eggs, and as you're looking at the eggs, you see that there are perhaps one or two Easter eggs that you know they didn't find. And I will tell you, this happened every year. For me, I would see that they had not found all the Easter eggs, But I had not done a map beforehand, so I was not necessarily sure where those Easter eggs were either. So I had to go out and try and find the Easter eggs that I had hidden myself that the kids could not find. Sometimes I was successful, sometimes I was not. Sometimes it took a long time to find them, sometimes I never found them. And so this is the idea of hiding things with the intent that they not be hidden so well that they cannot be found. Because what would the kids say if I went out and I said, you didn't find this Easter egg, and I began to dig in the ground and show them the hole in which I had hidden the Easter egg and buried it? I expect I would be accused of not playing fair because that is not exactly cricket. Indeed, in many movies, it is becoming more and more common to have what are called Easter eggs in the movies. They are things that people can see. They're in plain sight, but you have to first know what they mean, and then you have to see them, and you have to be able to put two and two together to understand the importance and the significance of the Easter egg. Now, it has happened on occasion that the kids, after an Easter egg hunt, have not found all the eggs, and I go out to find the eggs that they missed, and sometimes I will find an egg that is not hidden at all. It is actually out there in plain sight. It was one of the ones that was put out there for the little kids to find, but the little kids didn't find it, and the big kids didn't find it either. And the question arises, why couldn't anybody find this Easter egg when it was out there in the open? Anybody could see it. It was a gimme. And this gets us to the idea of hiding something in plain sight. Now we segue into Edgar Allan Poe because Edgar Allan Poe wrote a short story that was based upon the idea of hiding something in plain sight. And the name of that story is The Purloined Letter. Edgar Allan Poe is perhaps most famous for his stories about the macabre, the black cat, 
The Telltale Heart, The Fall of the House of Usher. But Edgar Allan Poe did not write exclusively in that genre. Indeed, he seems to have created the idea of the detective story. And he was writing and publishing detective stories, or the forerunner of detective stories, in the 1830s and 40s. This is several decades before Arthur Conan Doyle got around to writing his detective stories about some guy in a deerstalker cap who lived at 221B Baker Street. Like the Sherlock Holmes stories, Edgar Allan Poe's stories featured the same detective. Now, he did not write anywhere near as many stories about his detective as Arthur Conan Doyle did about Sherlock Holmes. Edgar Allan Poe wrote a total of three stories featuring one detective whose name was C, that's an initial, C. Auguste Dupin. And I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. I believe it is French. All of these happened in France. The other two stories featuring this detective are The Mystery of Marie Roget and perhaps the most famous of the three, The Murders in the Rue Morgue. But the purloined letter has to do with a letter that is stolen and which it is feared will be used in order to blackmail the Queen. In this way, the story bears certain marked resemblances to one of the most famous Sherlock Holmes stories, A Scandal in Bohemia, once again written several decades after the purloined letter. And it is because Edgar Allan Poe is credited with creating and inventing the genre called detective stories that every spring, Mystery Writers of America, the organization, that's their title, Mystery Writers of America, present awards for the best works in the category of mystery writers, and those awards are called the Edgars. You have the Oscars for motion pictures, you have the Emmys for television, and for mystery writing, you have the Edgars. So the point of bringing up this story by Edgar Allan Poe, The Purloined Letter, is because it is famous for the central idea that if you want to hide something from somebody else, you hide it in plain sight. And indeed, that's what happened with The Purloined or The Stolen letter. The person who stole it knew that the police would come looking for it and that they would know that it had been hidden and certainly it had been hidden well and carefully so that nobody could find it. And the police came and they searched and they searched and they could not find this letter. It was up to the very clever detective to search the room again and to discover that indeed the letter was hidden, but it was hidden in plain sight. Anybody could see it. It was like one of these Easter eggs hidden out in plain sight that nobody found. And the reason it was not found is because who would think that somebody would hide something in plain sight? In a similar way, Sherlock Holmes once said that the best place to commit a murder is in a crowd. So having talked a little bit about Edgar Allan Poe and the purloined letter, I want to talk a little bit about what are sometimes called aha moments. I don't know if you've ever heard that expression. I have only heard that expression in the church, and I haven't heard it very frequently. But every now and then, somebody in the church, and I've certainly experienced this myself, will have an aha moment. It is a sudden moment of realization. It's suddenly when you see things that you had not seen before. And usually, they are things that had been right in front of your face. You had read them a number of times. You had seen them a number of times. But only at the point of time of the aha moment do you suddenly have an additional insight into what it is that you have seen a hundred times before. And usually the aha moment is accompanied with the thought, how on earth could I have never seen that before? Sometimes it is not clear what has brought us to the point of having an aha moment. Perhaps it's just that we're thinking about things differently. Perhaps we've grown in experience and understanding and knowledge since the last time we looked at this particular text. And as often as not, things are hidden to us prior to the aha moment. Things are hidden to us because we already think that we know what the answer is. And there is nothing better for hiding new information from us than if we already think we know what the answer is. If we think we already know what the answer is, we're not going to go looking for any new information. And then something will happen that will jar us out of this idea that we already know what the answer is. We can look at something that we've looked at a hundred times before and all of a sudden, we see something new that we had never seen before, and frankly, that we probably never would have seen if we had continued to think that we already knew what the answer was, what the correct understanding was, what the correct interpretation was. So let me give you an example of this, and this has to do with this past weekend, which was Easter weekend. Now, compared to other churches, the LDS church does not really do very much to celebrate 
Easter. There are no special Easter services. About as far as the LDS Church goes in that regard is perhaps having the primary kids do a program and sacrament meeting that involves the Easter story. But that is actually more common at Christmas time because the birth of Jesus is something a little more child-friendly than his crucifixion. But even so, at this late date, and as unmoored as I have made myself from the tenets and truth claims of Mormonism, I still feel a sense of the sacred around and during Easter weekend. And especially do I feel this on Good Friday and also on Easter Saturday, the day during which we commemorate Jesus' being in the tomb between his crucifixion and prior to his resurrection on Easter morning. It is a sacred feeling, it is a somber feeling that I experience. And so last Saturday night, I decided to act upon those feelings, get myself apart from everybody else, and sit down and read the different accounts in the Gospels in the New Testament of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. I have read these, of course, many, many times before. And yet, as part of the feelings I was experiencing, I felt called to read them again, privately and meditatively. And as I did so, a number of things came to my mind. Now, these are not necessarily new things that came to my mind. Some of them may be new to you. If they give you an aha moment, then so much the better. These are things that certainly gave me aha moments in the past, one of which was the fact that all four different accounts in the Gospels in the New Testament have striking dissimilarities between the ways the four different stories are told. So much so that on Easter morning, I was watching an Easter service from a different denomination. Once again, Mormons don't do Easter very well. And this was in the context of a Catholic Mass from the cathedral in Washington, D.C. And as I turned it on, I noticed that the speaker was reading one of these Gospel accounts. And he did not mention the name of the account. And yet by listening to him read it, I was able to identify which gospel it came from. It was the gospel of Matthew. And the reason I was able to do that is once again because these different accounts in the four gospels are all different from each other. For example, on the morning of the resurrection, the gospel of Mark has not an angel showing up to the women who come to the tomb, but a young man. Luke, on the other hand, has not one man, but two men who are at the tomb to announce the resurrection of Jesus. These two men in Luke are not identified as angels, but they do wear shining garments. Matthew, however, is much more specific because there he says that there was a great earthquake that rolled back the stone from the door of the tomb and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. So in Matthew, he sticks with Mark's version in that there is only one being who shows up. In Mark, he is identified as a young man. Luke has two men who wear shining garments, but Matthew combines both of them and then elaborates on both of them by having one man, and he is specifically identified as an angel who comes down from heaven. The account of John, on the other hand, sticks with the two angels. However, they do not appear to the women generally when they first come to the tomb in the morning. Instead, in John, the women come to the tomb, see the stone rolled away, and the sepulcher is empty. They don't see anybody at that time. They just see an empty tomb. And then they run back and find the apostles and tell them that the tomb is empty. Two of the apostles then run to the tomb. They find it is empty. They scratch their heads and they walk away and Mary hangs around after they've left. And then it is Mary who stands outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. And then she sees two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. So you can see that in the different gospel accounts, none of them are the same. Some have one, some have two. Some have men, some have angels. And they appear at different times to different people and seated in different locations, if they are seated at all. And the reason I bring this up is because if we were listening to the Easter service that was broadcast from the Washington, D.C. Cathedral and heard the priest there read the account from Matthew, we might think, well, that's the way it happened, because he's reading only one of the accounts. He's not reading all four of the accounts together at the same time. And I'm going to come back to this idea here in a minute. But first, I want to talk about a huge aha moment that I have had in the past when reading these accounts. And what it has to do with is the fact that in Mormonism, and I expect in other Christian religions as well, we have a belief in a resurrection, that every one of us will be resurrected after we die, and that in that resurrection, 
we will look exactly the same as we did here in this life. Now, that is never really stated expressly, but it is stated implicitly. I think that in Mormonism, it may come the closest to being said expressly from a passage in the Book of Mormon with which most of you are familiar. It was a seminary scripture, at least when I was a kid, and it was another scripture that we were required to memorize at the MTC in preparation for going out to preach the gospel. Ah, Alma 11. Let me see here about Alma 11. Haha, <laughs> sorry. It is in Alma 11. I remembered it correctly. This is Alma 11, verses 43 and 44. The spirit and the body shall be reunited again in its perfect form. Both limb and joint shall be restored to its proper frame, even as we now are at this time. So there we have the closest that we have in any standard works that I know of to saying that we will look the same in the resurrection as we do here immortality, even as we now are at this time, and we shall be brought to stand before God, knowing even as we know now and have a bright recollection of all our guilt. And then in verse 44, now this restoration shall come to all, both old and young, both bond and free, both male and female, both the wicked and the righteous, and even there shall not so much as a hair of their heads be lost, but everything shall be restored to its perfect frame as it is now or in the body, and shall be brought and be arraigned before the bar of Christ, etc. So the idea is that we will look the same in the resurrection as we do now. At least that's the implication of this verse, and that is how it is typically read by members of the LDS Church. It is a very appealing notion. Now, the reason I go into all of this idea about looking the same in the resurrection as we do in mortality is because we have that idea so firmly fixed, or at least let me speak for myself. I have had, as a member of this church, this idea so firmly impressed upon me that it has made it so that I was unable to see what was pretty much plainly on the surface. This is the Easter egg hidden in the middle of the yard. This is the purloined letter hidden in plain sight. It has made it so easy for me to not understand what it is that the gospel seemed to be saying in their accounts of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. Because a common theme in virtually all of these accounts is that Jesus did not look the same as a resurrected being as he did in mortality. So let me share with you really quickly now the four primary post-resurrection accounts and you will see now with that idea in mind that Jesus does not look the same as a resurrected being as he did in mortality and see if that opens up to you the meaning in these passages or at least one of the meanings in these passages that has laid on the surface for 2,000 years. There are two such accounts in the Gospel of Luke and both of these accounts will be very familiar to you. And the first account is that of Cleopas and the other person that we are to assume is Luke when they encountered Jesus on the road to a mouse after the resurrection. This is found in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. I will read quickly. And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about three score furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened, i.e. the empty tomb. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now notice something about this story. These two apostles, these two disciples who obviously knew Jesus in mortality and are wondering why it is that the tomb was empty and that the women now are reporting that they saw two men at the tomb in shining garments who said that Jesus was resurrected. They don't say, hi, Jesus, how are you doing? Jesus starts walking along with these two disciples and they do not recognize him. In fact, that is one of the main motifs of this story is that he is not recognized. And the gospel account tries to give a reason for it but it's not really clear exactly what it's saying. It says in verse 16, but their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And that word holden comes from the Greek restrained. Yes, I'm using a footnote in the LDS Bible. But their eyes were restrained that they should not know him. What does that mean? Don't know. We'll go on. And he said unto them, what manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And of course, now the two disciples start telling him about Jesus and how they're sad because he died. And then Jesus, who is still not recognized by these two disciples, starts talking to them and going into the scriptures and unfolding the scriptures unto them about how it was that these things had been prophesied beforehand. And then at the end of this conversation, verse 28, And they drew nigh unto the village, whither they went, that would be a mouse, and he, Jesus, made as though he would have gone further. They still don't recognize him. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them, and it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread, and blessed it, and brake, and gave to them. Verse 31, Now all of a sudden, they have their own aha moment. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished." 
out of their sight. So that's the first account where disciples of Jesus who knew him well during mortality are unable to recognize him when he appears after the resurrection. Now, these two disciples do not stay in Emmaus. Once this happens, they go running back to Jerusalem and tell the other apostles. And then as far as Luke is concerned, that is the first post-resurrection account we have of Jesus. And now this segues into the second post-resurrection account of Jesus. This is when the 11 apostles are met together in a closed room. That begins in verse 36 of chapter 24. And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, peace be unto you. Now, once again, here's 11 of his apostles. If anybody knows what Jesus looks like, it's going to be these guys. And yet none of them say, hey, Jesus, it's great to see you. I can't believe you're resurrected. I'm so happy. No, they have a different reaction entirely. And if you understand that Jesus doesn't look the same way as he does post-resurrection as he did pre-resurrection, all of a sudden this makes a lot more sense. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, why are you troubled and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Look at my face. It's me, Jesus. Don't you recognize me? No, wait, he doesn't say that, does he? No, that's what you would expect him to say if indeed he looked the same as he did when he was in mortality. Instead, he doesn't draw their attention to his face and how he looks. Instead, he draws their attention to his hands and his feet and the wounds that are there. Behold my hands and my feet, not my face. Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. Now, in a Mormon context, I would use this passage as a proof text to talk about the physicality of the resurrection. But what I ended up doing was focusing so much on the reason I was using this as a proof text that I overlooked for many, many, many years the fact that it's also saying something else entirely, something that I was not prepared to hear, something I was not prepared to understand. And the reason I was not prepared to understand it is because I was so darn sure that I already knew the correct answer. And the correct answer is that everybody looks the same after the resurrection as they do before the resurrection up to and including Jesus. So I could never see the idea in this passage that seems strongly suggested that they could not recognize him by looking at his face. Instead, he had to draw their attention to the wounds in his hands and his feet. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy, so they still can't believe that it's really Jesus, and wondered, he said unto them, have ye here any meat? Which is the old Elizabethan English word for food in general. Meat just means food. It doesn't mean specifically it has to be meat like cut off an animal. And that's why they give him a piece of broiled fish and a honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. And so those are the two accounts of post-resurrection appearances that appear in Luke. Now, John has a couple of these as well, and they are very different from the stories that we have in Luke. But the theme is the same in John as well, is that the people to whom he appears do not recognize Jesus from looking at his face. The first person to whom Jesus appears after his resurrection in the Gospel of John is Mary. And we're all very familiar with this account. But now let's read it again very quickly with the idea in mind that Mary does not recognize Jesus. This is after Mary has looked into the tomb and seen the two angels in white, asking her why she's crying. And then she says, because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. Going on in verse 14. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing. She sees Jesus. But the sentence goes on. And knew not that it was Jesus. Well, how is it that Mary, who knows very well what Jesus looks like from his mortal ministry, is unable to identify him from his face after his resurrection? Once again, verse 14, and when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus said unto her, woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener. Why does she suppose him to be the gardener? Because she doesn't know who it is. It looks like somebody she's never seen before. So she supposes it's the gardener. She says unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. Now, that's interesting. Because now there's something about the fact that this gardener, this person she's never seen before, this complete stranger, knows her name. How does he know her name? Well, apparently it's more than the fact that half of the women in the New Testament have the same first name of Mary. Apparently it's more than that. There's something in the way he says her name, not in the way he looks, but in the way he says her name that makes it click for her. And she realizes, wait a second, this is Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Mary, she turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. 
And then Jesus says to her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. This is what Mary does, and this is why in the Gospel of John, Mary is sometimes referred to, not in the Gospel itself, but by other church fathers and church historians and Bible scholars as the Apostle to the Apostles. She is the witness to the witnesses. She is the first person who sees Jesus after his resurrection. Now, with this story, what is commonly done is that we will add elements to the story in order to make it support our preconception that Jesus looked the same after his resurrection as before his resurrection. We don't want to go to the place where, as seems obviously the case, he looks different. So we will add elements to it and we will try and explain why it is that even though he does look the same, right? Even though he does look the same, Mary didn't understand who it was at first. She didn't recognize him at first. And we will talk about the tears running down her face and they're all in her eyes. And so she can't really see clearly everything's blurry. And that's why she thought it was a gardener. That's why she didn't think it was Jesus. But what I have to realize is that when I do that, what I'm doing is I'm adding things to the story in order to make it support my own preconceptions. And I don't know, maybe that's true. I can't say it's not true. But what I can say is that a theme seems to be developing. You've got the two disciples on the road to a mouse who can't recognize Jesus when he appears to them after the resurrection. You've got the 11 apostles in the closed room. And technically, I think that should be 10 apostles in the closed room because Judas is not there, obviously, and neither is Thomas because he's running late and he's going to show up late to have his own encounter with Jesus. So technically, 10 apostles who do not recognize Jesus after his resurrection. And now in John, you have Mary at the tomb who does not recognize Jesus. And in the next chapter, John chapter 21, we are going to have another post-resurrection appearance of Jesus in which none of his apostles recognize him. He does not appear to look the same. And this is the one where they're out fishing on Galilee and Jesus comes walking along the shore and tells them to cast their net on the other side of the boat because they haven't caught anything all night. And here's how that story goes. This is chapter 21, the last chapter of John. Once again, I'll read quickly. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples. So that totals seven apostles, I think, itself a symbolically significant number. But there are seven of these apostles, and none of them recognize Jesus. Simon Peter said unto them, I go a fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. And when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. And once again, we try and read into the story, the additional fact or the additional speculation that they were so far away from the shore in their ship that they couldn't recognize Jesus because they couldn't get a clear look at his face. However, as the story develops, we understand that even after they got closer, they could not recognize him and identify him by looking at his face. I'll go on. And when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said unto them, Children, have ye any meat? Once again, that Elizabethan English word meat. They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship. Now that's really interesting because here we have the same question asked in the Gospel of John that Jesus asks his apostles in Luke, but it's in a very different context. That idea of have you any meat. In Luke, they have fish and a honeycomb and they give them to Jesus to eat. Here, they have no meat because they haven't caught any fish all night long. And he said unto them, cast the net on the right side of the ship and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. So now... Something miraculous has happened. They have fished all night long with their nets on the left side of the boat. They haven't caught anything. This guy, the stranger, this person they can't identify on the shore tells them, hey, throw your net on the right side of the boat. Now, of course, throwing your net on the right side of the boat is not going to make a dime's worth of difference from throwing your net on the left side of the boat under normal circumstances. But here a miracle happens, and now they catch so many fish, they can't even draw the nets into the boat. They know a miracle has happened. They know this person on the shore whom they cannot identify is special, and now things start to click. This must be Jesus. Remember, he said he would go before us. He said he would appear to us later. This must be Jesus. Verse 7, therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, it is the Lord. See, now they make the connection. It's not because they see him and identify him from his face. It's because he told them to cast the net on the right side and a miracle happened. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, it is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girded his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and he cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land. Now, notice here in the parenthetical comment in the Gospel of John itself, 
It says they were not far from land. This is different than the speculation that we frequently read into this account, that they were far from land, and that's why they couldn't recognize Jesus. This says, no, they were not far from land, but as it were 200 cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon and bread. Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of great fishes, a hundred and fifty-three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Now notice in verse 12, because now, even though initially when they saw Jesus on the shore, they were way out, maybe not so far out, but they were out in their fishing boat. Now they have landed the boat on shore. They are talking to Jesus face to face. They are up close and personal. Now they're sitting down at a fire with Jesus in order to have a meal. So now by this time, surely they recognize Jesus by looking at his face. Uh Uh-uh, not so fast. Read verse 12. Jesus saith unto them, come and dine. And none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Why is it they would even have this problem? Why would the disciples not dare ask him, Who are you? Why would they even wonder who he was if they could recognize him from his face? Well, the answer is because they couldn't recognize him because he looked different. They didn't know who it was by looking at him. And so none of them dared to ask him, Who are you? And why not? Because they knew it was the Lord. They didn't know from looking at him. They knew from the miracle. Once again, verse 12, Jesus saith unto them, come and dine, and none of the disciples durst ask him, who art thou, knowing that it was the Lord. And that's the end of that part of the account that I want to share with you. So once again, we have this idea of something that is plainly on the face. These are the Easter eggs in the middle of the backyard. This is the purloined letter hidden in plain sight. It seems apparent from all of these different post-resurrection accounts that it was a common understanding that after Jesus's resurrection, he did not look the same as he did prior to his resurrection. And this common belief appears to be manifested in virtually all of the major post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ recorded in the four Gospels. And yet, 2,000 years after they were written, the meaning that is plain on its face that Jesus looked different after his resurrection became hidden to me as a reader of the New Testament and even as a student of the New Testament. Why? Because I had come to understand and learned from my own culture, my own religion, that we do in fact look the same after our resurrection as we do prior to our resurrection. And Jesus looked the same after his resurrection as he did prior to his resurrection. And because I already knew the answer to that particular question, I was unable to see the fact hidden in plain sight that according to the Gospels, that was really not necessarily the case. So this was a huge aha moment for me. Now, let me talk a little bit more about amalgamating New Testament stories. I want to go back to that point earlier in this podcast where I talked about the different accounts of the resurrection of Jesus and of his crucifixion and how in all four different gospel accounts, although they all tell the story of his crucifixion and of his resurrection, they nevertheless differ in many of the details. And in fact, they differ so much that when that Catholic priest was reading one of the accounts during that sermon yesterday on Easter morning, I was able to identify which account which gospel he was reading from. Now, it is a time-honored practice, which goes back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, I think the earliest one goes back to the second or third century of creating an amalgamation of all four different gospel accounts and harmonizing them and putting them together and telling them as one story. This has been done in book form a number of times in many, many different religions. Is to tell the story of Jesus from his birth to his resurrection and everything in between, but to tell it in one story. And in order to do that, they harmonize all four of the different gospel accounts. They will take details from one account and stories from another account. They will put them together to tell one story. And almost invariably, this has the effect of getting rid of the contradictions, of smoothing out the rough places, of taking four different gospels that were written by four different authors with four different agendas for four different audiences and making an amalgamation or a pastiche of all of them so that it tells one story and it takes out the individuality of the different authors, it takes out the different details, and it takes out any contradictions that they may have. Let me tell you a couple of the main contradictions between the gospel accounts in regards to the last days of Jesus's ministry. One of the biggest differences is the day on which Jesus 
was crucified. Now, the first three Gospels, by which I mean Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are sometimes called the Synoptic Gospels because they tend to view and relate the life of Jesus all from one point of view. John, however, is different from the Synoptic Gospels because it is completely different from the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels are not all the same. They all have a bunch of different stories and a bunch of different details that are different from each other, but John is in a class by itself. It is completely different. It is one of these things doesn't belong here. Three of these things are kind of the same. So as to the day that Jesus was crucified, we are very familiar with the idea that Jesus was crucified the day after he has the Passover feast with his apostles. He meets with them in an upper room. They have the Passover feast. He likens the bread to his flesh. He likens the wine to his blood. And then he is crucified the day after that. That's the synoptic gospels, but John has him crucified the day before he's crucified in the other gospels. Let me explain what I mean. In John's gospel, the author is very careful to have Jesus crucified at the same time that the lambs are being sacrificed in the temple. Those lambs are being sacrificed in preparation for the Passover meal that will be held by the Jewish people that evening. That's why the lambs are being sacrificed that day. So the Synoptic Gospels have Jesus crucified the day after the Passover feast. The author of John, however, has him crucified the day before, which probably accounts for why it is that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are accounts of the Passover meal with Jesus and his apostles. But in the Gospel of John, there is no mention of the Passover meal. There is no Last Supper in the Gospel of John. And there are many more of these kinds of differences between the Synoptic Gospels and the Gospel of John. For example, all three of the Synoptic Gospels are unified in their portrayal of Jesus as someone who taught by parables. In fact, the three Synoptic Gospels have places where they say that Jesus taught only by parables. But when you get to the Gospel of John, you will find that Jesus never uses a parable. There is not one parable. In the Gospel of John, he teaches in a completely different way in John. Another difference between the Gospels has to do with the timing of the cleansing of the temple, the story when Jesus goes to the temple and throws over the tables of the money changers and makes an absolute riot and condemns all of the people present for making the house of God into a den of thieves, quoting from a prophecy in the book of Jeremiah. This is one of the stories that is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. And actually, when you're talking about stories that get mentioned in all four of the Gospels, you end up being left with a surprisingly small collection. There are not many stories that are mentioned in all four Gospels. This is one of them. The difference, however, is when it occurs in the Synoptic Gospels. Jesus' cleansing of the temple happens at the end of his ministry. In fact, this is the thing that he does that gets the leaders of the Jews so mad at him that they end up deciding that he has to be done away with and the wheels are set in motion for him to be crucified. So in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus's cleansing of the temple happens at the end of his ministry. This is not when it happens in John. In John's Gospel, the cleansing of the temple happens at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, not at the end. And literally speaking, There is a reason for that in John. And the reason for that in John is because it is not the cleansing of the temple that is the precipitating force for the leaders of the Jews to get Jesus crucified. Instead, it is a different story. And the story in John that serves as the catalyst for Jesus's crucifixion is a story that occurs only in John and not in any of the other three gospels. It is a very famous story. It is the story of the raising of Lazarus. The raising of Lazarus happens at the end of Jesus's ministry in the Gospel of John. It doesn't happen at all in the other three Gospels, but in the Gospel of John, it happens at the end of Jesus's ministry, and that is the catalyst for his crucifixion. Therefore, we cannot have two catalysts for Jesus's crucifixion in one Gospel, so it appears that what happened is that the author of the Gospel of John maintained and kept the cleansing of the temple story, but he put it at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Okay, So let's say you're going to write a story now. You have set yourself the task of writing a story of Jesus's life, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and you're just going to tell it in one telling, and you're going to use the four Gospels as your source material. Now, this has happened, as I say, for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mormons have their own version of this, and it is the book, Jesus the Christ, by James Talmadge. He goes through and he does the same thing. He uses some LDS scriptures as well, but primarily what he's doing is he's taking the Gospels and he's writing one story of Jesus's life from beginning to end, telling it once and using the four different Gospels as his source material. And indeed, he's doing the same thing as other people had done before. In fact, he is using other people's attempts to do the same thing, such as the life of Christ, which he cites to 
frequently in his book, Jesus the Christ, and examples could be multiplied. And actually, now that we're in an age where we have movies, many different movies have been made of the life of Christ. We even have musicals about the life of Christ, like Jesus Christ Superstar. And anytime you're going to have a movie, that is by necessity going to be the same kind of thing. It's going to be one telling of the life of Christ based on four different gospels, and the director and the writer have to choose which stories they're going to use, which stories they're not going to use, and what order they're going to put those stories in. So once again, getting back to the cleansing of the temple, when somebody is writing one story about Jesus's life or doing one movie about Jesus's life, they usually want to keep this story in. It's a famous story. It's a very dramatic story. It's a good story to have in your book or in your movie, but you have to make a decision. When are you going to have it happen? Are you going to follow the three synoptic gospels and have the cleansing of the temple at the end of Jesus's ministry? Or are you going to follow the gospel of John and have it at the beginning of Jesus's ministry? So you've really got three options here if you're writing a book or making a movie. You can have it at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. You can have it at the end of Jesus's ministry. Or as sometimes happens, you can say that the cleansing of the temple happened two times, both at the beginning of Jesus's ministry and at the end of Jesus's ministry. And of course, the idea behind that is that it's in the Bible, it's in the New Testament, it must be correct, both different accounts must be correct, and therefore we're gonna have it happen twice. This in spite of the fact that there is no gospel standing on its own that says it happened twice. Every gospel is agreed that it happened only once. They only differ as to the timing of the incident. But no matter which way you go, what you have effectively done for your audience is you have obliterated and hidden the fact that different authors of the Gospels portray this event differently as to its timing. If you portray the cleansing of the temple as appearing only at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, then you're supporting John, but you're hiding the fact that the three synoptic Gospels have it at the end. If, on the other hand, you portray it as having occurred at the end of Jesus's ministry, well, now you're supporting the synoptic Gospels, but you're hiding the fact that John has it at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And If you have it happen twice, both at the beginning of Jesus's ministry and the end of Jesus's ministry, now you're including both different accounts from the four gospels, but what you end up hiding is the fact that they disagree between themselves as to when it happened. It makes it sound like they're all unified when in fact they're not. And this is just one example of literally hundreds of choices that have to be made when you are portraying one story of Jesus's life and using all four gospels as your source material. And so finally now, I have set the stage, I think, to getting to the first talk in the most recent General Conference, April 2020, which was given by Elder Russell Ballard, because as part of his talk, he is going to give an address that describes the first vision experience that Joseph Smith had. Now, this is not unexpected because we know that this is the general conference in which we are going to be commemorating the 200th anniversary of Joseph Smith's first vision. So a lot of time is gonna be given to that first vision. That's not what is unexpected. What was unexpected for me is that Russell Ballard, in recounting one story of Joseph Smith's first vision, ended up doing a very similar thing to what those who make one account of Jesus's life using all four accounts in the New Testament as their source material and taking bits and pieces from the different gospels in order to make one story. He did the same thing with Joseph Smith's first vision. Joseph Smith, as you know, gave four primary accounts of the first vision. We've talked about that before. They're in 1832, 1835, 1838, and 1842. The 1838 account is the official church vision. It is canonized in the Pearl of Great Price. And that official version is the version that we have heard pretty much exclusively for over a hundred years in the LDS church when leaders of the church have been talking about Joseph Smith's vision or writing about Joseph Smith's first vision. They simply go back and they repeat and quote the 1838 account that Joseph Smith gave of his first vision. Now, as all of us know, at least all of us who've been listening to this podcast know, because I've dealt with it a number of times, there are differences, and you don't have to have listened to this podcast to know it, but there are differences between Joseph Smith's primary accounts of his first vision. And perhaps the most problematic of all of these is the earliest account that he gave, which was 1832, which he wrote in his own handwriting. And this account is so difficult and so problematic that when Joseph Fielding Smith discovered it in the letter book in which it was contained, he had it cut out and hid it away in his safe for three decades. So hopefully nobody or relatively nobody could see it or know of its existence. This is Joseph Fielding Smith's version of an Easter egg hunt in which he does not play cricket, but he actually digs a hole and he buries the Easter egg so that nobody can find it. 
So there are different problems between the different accounts of the first vision and different ways in which they don't line up. They're all telling the same story, generally speaking, like the four gospel accounts are telling the same story of Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. But there are a number of places where they don't line up. But as we all know, the very existence of all four of these different accounts has become such public knowledge in spite of the church's efforts to keep a lid on it. It has become such public knowledge that they have to try and deal with the existence and to some degree, even the contents of these four different accounts of the first vision. And that is what Elder M. Russell Ballard does in his first talk, giving one account of the first vision. And he will pick and choose different elements from the different four accounts as he does so. But of course, he will not pick the details from the different accounts that end up conflicting or contradicting or being problematic with other details from other accounts that he's picking out. No, that's not the purpose. The point is to iron out the wrinkles in the different accounts so he can tell one story which incorporates elements from all four different accounts, but that one story itself is smooth and whole and has no problems. And actually, even that is not entirely true because there is one point at which he does give a conflicting detail from the 1832 account. But what he does is he works it into his narrative in such a way that it does not appear to conflict at all. That was a masterstroke on his part. And I was listening to this part of conference live as Elder Ballard was giving this talk. And as he was doing that, I was calling out the different accounts that he was quoting from as he would pick and choose his bits and pieces to tell this one version of the first vision. And let's do a similar thing today. Let me find this talk because now I'm going to read this part of Elder Ballard's talk and then I'll play the audio so you can hear what it is that I mean. Now, in the written version of his talk, there are footnotes. Now, the printed version of the talks in General Conference are now online. They've finally gotten those up. And if you read through those, you can see that there are footnotes. And if you click on the little numbers at the end of different sentences, it will actually show you where those sources are coming from. And indeed, he made a point of going to all four of the primary accounts of Joseph Smith's first vision for one point or another, even though the main account on which he relied was, of course, the official 1838 account. Let's go through this portion of the talk and see how Elder Ballard does this. The name of the talk is, Shall We Not Go On in So Great a Cause? He gives some background on Joseph Smith and Joseph Smith's family and how it was that they came to move to New York. And to Elder Ballard's credit, he actually identifies the fact that there are four primary accounts and the fact that he is drawing on all four primary accounts. He does that in the body of his talk. In fact, that's how he introduces this section of his talk. Here's what he says. During this time of debate and strife among religious parties, Joseph experienced a wondrous vision known today as the first vision. We are blessed to have four primary accounts accounts from which I will draw. He goes on, Joseph recorded, during this time of great religious excitement, my mind was called up to serious reflection and great uneasiness. Now, this is, of course, from the 1838 account, the official version. But though my feelings were deep and often poignant, still I kept myself aloof from all these parties, though I attended their several meetings as often as occasion would permit, dot, dot, dot. Yet so great were the confusion and strife among the different denominations that it was impossible for a person, young as I was, and so unacquainted with men and things, to come to any certain conclusion who was right and who was wrong. So that's a long quote from the 1838 account. He then says, Joseph turned to the Bible to find answers to his questions and read James 1.5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Now, this is also from the 1838 account. There is no mention of Joseph reading the Bible, much less James 1.5 in the 1832 account. Elder Ballard goes on, quoting the 1838 account. You can see how the official version is given primacy of place in this address. He noted, Never did any passage of scripture come with more power to the heart of man than this did at this time to mine. It seemed to enter with great force into every feeling of my heart. I reflected on it again and again. Once again, 1838 account. He has not quoted from any account other than the 1838 account up to this point. He goes on, Joseph came to realize that the Bible did not contain all the answers to life's questions. Rather, it taught men and women how they could find answers to their questions by communicating directly with God through prayer. Okay. He goes on, once again, quoting from the 1838 account. So far, this is the standard operating procedure for what leaders of the church and other teachers in the church have done for over 100 years, which is rely exclusively on the 1838 account. He added, so in accordance with this, my determination to ask of God, I retired to the woods to make the attempt. It was on the morning of a beautiful, clear day early in the spring of 1820. He will conclude this part of his story once again with the 1838 account. Soon thereafter, Joseph said that a pillar of light rested upon me and I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name and said, pointing to the other, Joseph, this is my beloved son, hear him. The Savior then spoke and now for the first time, Elder Ballard is going to depart from the official account, and he is going to go to the 1832 account 
of Joseph Smith's first vision. The Savior then spoke, Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. Go thy way, walk in my statutes, and keep my commandments. Behold, I am the Lord of glory. I was crucified for the world, that all those who believe on my name may have eternal life. Now, this is the 1832 account where Joseph Smith's reason for going to the grove to pray has nothing to do with wanting to know which church is true, because indeed, he'd already figured that out from the Bible before he went to pray. We've covered that in prior podcasts. Instead, he feels weighed down by a knowledge of his sin. He wants to have his sins forgiven. That is the sole reason he goes to the grove to pray and there apparently one being appears to him it is Jesus Christ and he tells him in response to his prayer to have his sins forgiven that hey Joseph my son thy sins are forgiven and that is why that is the message from the Savior in the 1832 account as opposed to none of the churches are true in subsequent accounts but notice what Elder Ballard is doing here he is taking this detail from the 1832 account which does not fit when laid side by side with the other accounts but taking this one detail now and putting it in one telling of the story of Joseph Smith's first vision he's creating an amalgamation so that he can incorporate this one element from the 1832 account in his telling in a way that does not contradict but flows seamlessly into the narrative. And after this one quote from the 1832 account, he now goes back to the 1838 account and says, Joseph added, No sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself so as to be able to speak, than I asked the personages who stood above me in the light, which of all the sects was right. So notice what's happening. That's the 1838 account where the reason Joseph goes to the grove to pray is to find out which church is true. But in the middle of reading from the 1838 account, he includes this little snippet from the 1832 account. And he does it in such a way as to hope that the people who are listening will not recognize what is going on. In this way, I see Elder Ballard as attempting to hide something in plain sight. This is his version of Poe's purloined letter. So then he goes on and says, he recalled, Joseph recalled, quote, they told me that all religious denominations were believing in incorrect doctrines and that none of them was acknowledged of God as his church and kingdom. And at the same time, I received a promise that the fullness of the gospel should at some future time be made known unto me. Now there he's going from the 1842 account, the account that is contained in what we know as the Wentworth letter. And the reason that's able to be identified just from hearing it, if you know the accounts already, is the promise that is mentioned from God that the fullness of the gospel should at some future time be made known unto me. That is a detail that is not mentioned in any of the other accounts by Joseph Smith. It is not mentioned in the 1832 account, the 1835 account, or even in the official version, the 1838 account. This is mentioned only in the 1842 account. And so he takes that promise, which is very important now when we're dealing with a man who is being called as a prophet of God or preparatory to being a prophet of God to restore God's church and the fullness of the gospel that he receives this promise from God that the fullness of the gospel should at some future time be made known unto me. So he's gone from the 1838 account, the official version, using it as the primary source. He has now included one detail from the 1832 account about Joseph, thy sins are forgiven thee. He went back to the 1838 account and now he adds this promise to Joseph from the 1842 account. And finally, because, hey, where's the 1832? account. Well, he adds now a little detail from the 1835 account because one of the details that's in the 1835 account that's not in any of the other accounts is that Joseph said he saw many angels in the vision. So in his talk, Elder Ballard now says, after giving that promise from the 1842 account, Joseph also noted, I saw many angels in this vision. So there's the 1835 account. Now he segues back to the 1832 account and says, following this glorious vision, Joseph wrote, remember Joseph wrote, this is the only one in his own hand. Joseph wrote, my soul was filled with love and for many days I could rejoice with great joy. The Lord was with me. That is from the 1832 account, the earliest version. And actually, if you go through this talk and you take the time to actually click on the different footnotes that I've been referring to, it will show you that it's going from these different accounts. And then Elder Ballard concludes this part of his talk by saying, he, Joseph, he emerged from the sacred grove to begin his preparation to become a prophet of God. And now I'm going to play this part of the talk by Elder Ballard. Because when you hear him say that, if you don't already know all this stuff, if you are not already familiar, and actually pretty well familiar with the different four primary accounts of Joseph Smith's first vision, and the different elements that they have in each of the different accounts, and you are just here Elder Ballard tell this story. You're not going to have any idea which account he's quoting from when, and you're also not going to have any idea 
of the fundamental tensions, difficulties, and even contradictions between the different accounts. And one might get the idea that that's the entire point of this. To have Elder Ballard, a church leader, showing that he is aware of the four different primary accounts of Joseph Smith's first vision, actually drawing from each of those four primary accounts in a talk that he is giving in general conference. So there he's signaling to those who know about the four primary accounts that he's aware of them. They're not a problem for him. He obviously still has a testimony of the church and he's comfortable enough with them that he is going to be quoting from each one in his conference talk. On the other hand, for the vast majority of listeners to general conference, they are going to not know about the details that are in these four primary accounts. And so they will not know which account he's quoting from as he is talking. And they will be left with the impression that there are no contradictions between the accounts, that in fact, they all tell one seamless story. In fact, it's so seamless that he can quote from all four different accounts and tell one story that may have a couple of things in them that sound different, like, I saw many angels in this vision, and yet will have no contradictions and no tensions and no problems between them. So now I'm going to play this audio from General Conference so you can hear how it is that Elder Ballard does this, how he takes the different four versions of Joseph Smith's first vision and incorporates details from each in order to make a seamless whole. I have to give it to Elder Ballard. He does this quite deftly. It is a masterful performance. Play the tape. During this time of debate and strife among religious parties, Joseph experienced a wondrous vision known today as the first vision. We are blessed to have four primary accounts from which I will draw. Joseph recorded during this time of great religious excitement, my mind was called up to serious reflection and great uneasiness, but through my feelings, though my feelings were deep and often poignant, Still, I kept myself aloof from all these parties. Though I attended their several meetings as often as occasion would permit, yet so great were the confusion and strife among the different denominations that it was impossible for a person, young as I was and so unacquainted with men and things, to come to any certain conclusion which was right who was right and who was wrong. Joseph turned to the Bible to find answers to his questions and read James 1 and 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. He noted, Never did any passage of Scripture come with more power to the heart of a man than this did at this time to mine. It seemed to enter with great force into every feeling of my heart. I reflected on it again and again. Joseph came to realize that the Bible did not contain all the answers to life's questions. Rather, it taught men and women how they could find answers to their questions by communicating directly with God through prayer. He added, So in accordance with this, my determination to ask of God, I retired to the woods to make an attempt. It was on the morning of a beautiful clear day, early in the spring of 1820. Soon thereafter, Joseph said, that a pillar of light rested upon me, and I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description, standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, Joseph, this is my beloved son. Hear him. The Savior then spoke, Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. Go thy way. Walk in my statutes and keep my commandments. Behold, I am the Lord of glory. I was crucified for the world, that all those who believe on my name may have eternal life. Joseph added, No sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself so as to be able to speak, then I I asked personages who stood above me in in the light, which of all the sects was right? He recalled, they told me, 
that all religious denominations were believing in incorrect doctrines and that none of them had the acknowledged, was acknowledged of God as his church and kingdom. And at the same time, I received a promise that the fullness of the gospel should some future time be made known unto me. Joseph also noted, I saw many angels in this vision. Following this glorious vision, Joseph wrote, My soul was filled with love, and for many days I could rejoice with great joy. The Lord was with me. He emerged from the sacred grove to begin his preparation to become a prophet of God. And so, in this first talk in the most recent General Conference, when Elder Ballard gives this amalgamation of the First Vision accounts, the four primary First Vision accounts, to narrate one account of the First Vision, we may have another example of the age-old phenomenon of hiding something in plain sight. Is it possible that that is the entire point of this whole process? And telling the story in this way, that I will leave for you to decide. I am not a mind reader. I can't tell whether that's the point that Elder Ballard has in mind in doing this, but I can tell you that that is probably the effect it will have with a great many Latter-day Saints, that they will be exposed to different elements of the four different accounts of the first vision, but they will be exposed in such a way that they will have no idea as to the fact that there are discrepancies and even contradictions between them. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.